back to Beyond Well. I am so excited to bring you this conversation today because I read an article last week that just kind of blew my socks off around all of the things I've been thinking about with the implications of COVID-19 on our health systems and on our psychological health. And I was so thrilled to read an article that was written by uh, Jonathan Salk. He says, Dr. Jonas Salk, who led the team that developed the first effective polio vaccine, was my father. Today, people often ask me what he would have thought or done about our current pandemic. My full answer may not be the one they expect. Jonathan Salk, a highly respected adult and child psychiatrist, and Jonas's youngest son, joins us today. I am so happy to talk with you via Zoom. It's just wonderful to see you, Jonathan. Thank you for the interest and the enthusiasm about the article. So, first of all, I think a lot of people, the first question that they had when you wrote that was, did you have the kind of intimate conversations with your father about his vaccine for polio, about what it did for the community and the world at large? And it, was that enough information as a child and as a young man to help you formulate this beautiful essay that you wrote? That's a great question. And it has many wrinkles to it. But the simple answer is yes. But that relationship happened in stages over my lifetime. Of course. Um, by that, I mean, you know, I grew up with a vaccine. I was five when it came out. So I, I kind of knew everything that was going on as well as I could at five. And then, you know, it's kind of assimilated it over a lot of time. So when I was in my 20s, we didn't talk that much. We were kind of on different tracks. But there was always a sense of connection about some of these larger issues about where society was going and what was going to happen with people. And so he did talk a lot about the vaccine, about the killed virus, but he also talked a lot about these other ideas. But I really have to say that some of the appreciation of the vaccine for me has come only since he died. He died in 1995. Mm -hmm. So I spent a fair amount of time thinking about his life and, and what happened. And when I revisit those things, I go, wow, that was really something. Yeah, you know, whereas no when I was a kid, it was kind of like, eh. Right. And above all, your father, of all of the visionaries, of all of the scientists in the world, of all of the discoverers, probably foresaw a day like we are having today where we would have to contend with another huge pandemic. I, I think you're right. I think he would have hoped that it wouldn't happen and that we would be better prepared. <laughs> but yeah. at the same time, he was aware of the dangers. You say in um, your essay, even though he's the historical figure identified with the triumph of medical science, he would have emphasized that there is more to eradicating disease than science alone. It also involves human-to-human -human social, political, and economic relationships. I think that one paragraph so aptly summarizes how big this challenge is in front of us. And I want to kind of break those down if you don't mind. Sure, sure. Um, we right now have a real disconnect between what um, our government response is and what individuals are wishing was out there so that we could begin rejoining our lives and go about our lives safely. And, uh -huh. and one of the things that your dad knew about and understood is that vaccines aren't enough alone. Expand uh -huh. on that if you would. Sure. My first answer goes way back to when he was just beginning to work on the vaccine and the head of the March and Dimes, the National Foundation, met him and said, I finally found a scientist who thinks out of the laboratory. My father always had a sense of science isn't enough, this has to be applied. And then much later in his life, he really came to see that, that there was more, that, that it wasn't just producing a vaccine, it had to be distributed. 
And it wasn't good enough just to have the right ideas. It has to be implemented. And that he would have many creative ideas and realize that what's obstructing here is actually people and relationships and politics yeah. um, and not so much the technology. Later in his life, he, he really broadened that vision a great deal and thought a lot about social and political things. You said he'd insist on making COVID-19 screening, treatment, and vaccination available to all of us, regardless of where we live or our social or economic standing. Given that you live with your father's DNA and, and his historical mark, I am sure that you're probably very, very concerned that we're nowhere near where we need to be on screening and testing. And absolutely. You know, absolutely. There's almost nothing to say about it. It's, yeah, it's so, so it's clear what the, what, <laughs> what, what the gulf is yeah. um, and what a difference it would make to, to all of us socially, economically, politically, to have that available, that it would really be a win-win. Yeah. That it would not only help contain the disease, but it would help us get back to functioning. The cost benefit is, you know, the benefits are so huge and the cost is so relatively little. I want to talk to you about this idea that you say your dad would have also noted the implications that this pandemic holds for our long-term future and our discussion about who we're going to be. And I see a lot of lofty memes about how we're going to be more socially equitable and perhaps we're going to be more economically sustainable and perhaps we'll, for the first time in our lives, really give the, the kind of attention that, that we need to be paying to how we, how we treat animals. You know, there, there's a lot of hope out there. Uh -huh. But how much of that came true after your father's vaccine for polio? Was there this huge shift in consciousness, this transformation societally that we all need to cooperate more? No, there, there wasn't. And, yeah. you know, I think he was one of the things, and, and not to paint him in too grand a light, but it's not so much that he was necessarily a visionary, although he, he had the ability to sort of think about things and see things before other people, so that he was often ahead of the curve about any number of things. In this respect, Shilish, he basically in the late 60s and early 70s, he began to formulate a lot of ideas beyond just biology, and he actually called it metabiology, which you know, encompassed our, our whole lives. And at that point, and, you know, there's, and there's a whole long paragraph about this in my mind. He began to see that we need to look at things from the long term. And if we look at it from the long term, and he used the image of the population growth curve, which we discuss in, in the book that he and I wrote together, A New Reality. But skipping over the details of that, basically he realized that we were at, a, at an inflection point in society. And we'd been in this period of time where everything was based on growth. Everything was based on consumption and waste and mindless resource use, and that that actually was beneficial for people. It happened that way because it was natural, the way that evolution evolved. But he actually, looking forward, said, you know what, this population can't grow forever, and it's most likely going to level off at a plateau, unless, of course, we completely blow it and it just collapses to, to nothing. He saw that second period of time that we're right on the inflection point between of a time of decelerating growth, and in that time, then we can't have an, an economy that's based on endless growth. We can't consume all the materials. We're going to encounter planetary limits. And that there's a whole different side of us that has to adapt to be part of that. And is that where we are now, Jonathan? Yes. That's exciting. It's, it, it, it is exciting. It, yeah. You know, it's really, you know, potentially, 
you know, really great and exciting because one perspective on it, again, is the population curve. We turned from an accelerating growth to decelerating growth sometime in the last 20 to 30 years. And if you're looking at the long term over hundreds or even thousands of years, what you see is that we had this huge spike in this incredible growth because of technology, because of resources available, because of agriculture, and our population has shot up in like no way it ever has before. Yeah. And we're right at the moment where we're transitioning to a different reality, to a different sense of things. Adding this inflection point, you say, is also the moment that we could embrace our wisdom and use this um, crisis as an opportunity to shift from individualism to interdependence. If there's ever been a time where, where our need for interdependence is just forced back in our face, it's right now, right? Exactly. You know, not being a, too much of a Pollyanna about it, but there, there's a potential bright side to this. Now, he thought, and I, I, along with him, thought that this was a transition that was going to have to happen sometime around now. And that in that time of transition, there was going to be a tremendous conflict between the old values, which say, let's go back, let's be individualist, let's be competitive, let's continue using fossil fuels until when, who knows, and those who would be sort of looking ahead and saying, you know what, in order to adapt to a different world where we have limits, where we're using up resources, that we actually, to survive, we have to do it differently. I just, I love the, um, the conversation with you right now because I think the big uh-huh. debate is, do we place material and economic value ahead of human life? Do we reopen the government, reopen cities? Uh-huh. And what does that mean? And, you know, there's actually people that are saying there's this value that we can place on every human life and it might be worth it. And I can imagine your dad just rolling his eyes over this idea that at any cost for economic value, we go ahead and reopen and just see what happens with the number of deaths. Right, right. You know, he probably more than anybody would understand the tension and he would understand the conflict and necessity in some sense for working out a solution that creates the best possible combination of those things. Right. He would, I want to say, decry. I mean, he was actually a very kind of mild, non-confrontational person. He would have maybe raised an eyebrow or rolled his eyes, but he wouldn't have engaged in, a, in an all-out battle about it. But that said, yeah, he would just be sick at mm. the idea of unnecessary suffering. This was just killed him from the time he was a little boy. Mm. And he saw soldiers returning from World War I, and they were crippled and maimed. And it just bothered him. It bothered him when there was unnecessary distress or disease. How long did he work on the vaccine before it was readily made available? You know, it's uh, along with a lot of things, it's a really amazing story. The vaccine was announced as being safe, effective, and potent in 1955, in April Mm. 1955. He actually didn't begin working on the polio vaccine until really the late 40s. I think it's around 49 or 50 that he began working on a polio vaccine per se. He'd worked for a couple of years on doing studying about polio virus, and then he turned his mind to the vaccine. So it was a relatively short period of time, you know, kind of no more than six or seven or eight years. Yeah. It's heartening, I can imagine, knowing and, and knowing the process your father had to go through to develop the polio vaccine, seeing the world scientists, the world's brightest minds, all cooperating on attempting to try to crack the nut on what a vaccine will be. Uh But 
But I have heard best estimates, it might be one, two years, and then getting it readily available to people could be three, four. Do you foresee a prophylactic before that, that similar to the AIDS virus that people might be able to take that would lessen the impact of this very lethal virus on our systems? Yes. The, the simple answer is yes. The knowledge and the technology that we have at this point is so different and so much more sophisticated. So that I think that the development of antiviral drugs and eventually the development of vaccine, it seems likely. But again, just to come back to the point, doing that is a social and political problem in, in two ways. One is we do have social and political ways of minimizing the spread of the virus. And then we need to invest the resources and get everyone working together in a way that really addresses this. Yeah. And that's a lesson he really learned from the vaccine. There was competition about who was going to do the first vaccine, but the National Foundation really brought together and invested and the U.S. government and everyone supported it in such a, such a heartening way. Wow. I want to move to the psychiatric, psychological implications of this virus because for the first time in a crisis in human history, we're not being asked to go out on the front lines of a war. We're not being asked to go be Rosie the Riveter and make things for our troops. We're being asked to stay at home and isolate, which is the hardest thing for human beings to do. And so I am, I'm sure you are, vastly concerned about the psychological impact on people's lives, especially those without support systems or a financial um, baseline to allow them to actually sustain themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, for so many people, there's, there's no positive in it. It's just a tremendous stress, a tremendous threat to them. And, you know, I just both on one side, I just feel so fortunate not to be in the position and, and to have shelter and to have a little bit of a financial cushion. And I think about all those people who don't have those things, yeah. ranging from regular working class people who in, are just living you know, paycheck to paycheck on the one hand, and the amount of uncertainty and stress that that, that increases in their lives to the to people who are really borderline homeless or homeless. You know, it's so difficult. And then I think about people just simply cooped up in a smaller place than I live yep. and with small children and with, I, I, it's kind of unimaginable. So I've been trying to talk to, especially, you know, people like yourself who see clients on a, a regular basis about what would recovery look like with the virus still out there, with it being just as lethal as it is now, but what would it look like to be able to develop a system where families could move somewhat freely, or at least we have a, a system where on Monday, this many people go out and on Tuesday, you know, some way of at least building in activity movement um, so that people don't begin to feel like they're in solitary confinement? Stupendous question, which I will attempt to answer, but hopefully there are smarter minds than mine who are, who are addressing this. But... I think it would look like a stepwise progression. And I think finding a way to meet not only people's economic needs, but their social needs as well. Yeah. And, and we have to really think of it in terms of those people who don't have technology, who don't have Zoom and Skype available to them, right. who are not able to make these other kinds of connections. And you know, we won't get into it you know, in any detail, but obviously it involves adequate testing and isolation of disease. But I think it would be establishing connections slowly with family, with friends, people in proximity, 
and then expanding it beyond there, expanding it to the workplace. Yeah. But I think that would be the ideal way to go about it. And if you could give a timeline on that, and I know I've put you on the spot here, but <laughs> but do you see that happening in the next months? Because I, I'm already seeing, you know, calls to the suicide hotline in our state have um, quadrupled. We have wow. um, the number of teenagers that are being admitted for e- eating disorders is up 50%. Mm-hmm. You're already in just many people have only been isolating five, six weeks, and you're already seeing the psychological pressures. Right, right. You know, in terms of a timeline, that's, that's such a difficult question to wrestle with. I can tell you just my personal outlook is, I think it really comes down to it. I think if we were really managed to and we could economically sustain it and socially sustain it, in terms of people's safety and in production of the disease, I would say, you know, we would really need more than a month, but like two months of isolation and then a gradual progression from there. That's yeah. a best case scenario. And you know, Jonathan, I think there's a lot of um, misunderstanding about the virus because earlier people thought, well, if we make it to summer, the virus can't live in heat. That's Uh been disproven. The virus Uh is going to stay until we have a vaccine, correct? Correct. And the only way that it ends up dying out kind of is if we get enough immunity in the population where it sort Uh of doesn't have anybody else to jump to, correct? Correct. You know, one of the things that I've been trying to do when I talk to friends is when you're talking about a new reality, really understanding that this is not just a couple of weeks. This is not just a couple of months. This may be a huge shift, this pinnacle shift for human beings. Correct. Correct. So when we're talking about that shift, you know, it's such an epical change that we're talking about. You know, we're talking about decades. We're talking about in terms of, of making the, the adjustments we make. You know, we've got a little bit of a time window in terms of climate change and, and, you know, now with the virus. What is exciting to me and hopeful to me is this really puts us in a place where we're really discovering how we can live differently. Mm-hmm. And how we can live according to what many people sort of thought and foresaw that we need to live, which is consuming less. Yeah. The whole issue of, you know, we're all managing okay, and we're not using as much as oil. There's just a number of things. The other thing is our economy. You know, from a certain point of view, it's just horrendous. You know, we're going down the tubes. From another point of view, there's a real opportunity here because we were going to have to come up with an economy that's based on something other than unlimited growth. And Um, unlimited consumerism. And unlimited consumerism. Yeah, because it wasn't working for so many people. It wasn't working for so many people and it wasn't working for the planet. There's a wonderful book by a British economist called Donut Economics that really addresses this basic fallacy that we can ultimately grow and also placing monetary value on it and replaces the monetary value with the values of the health of the planet and the values of the health of human beings and the rest of nature. Yeah, I love the mind shift. I hope that we can get, as your father hoped, enough social supports in place quickly for families who are so on the edge so that we don't begin to see the loss of human life in another completely unexpected way, like suicides and um, you know the kind of, of thing that you probably have to deal with when your clients are in crisis all the time. Uh-huh. And, and my hope, 
is that it begins to be a two-pronged path about the psychological well-being and our health, which I've always wanted the two to merge, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, maybe in future conversations, we can pick that back up about some of the things that you're seeing in your own ranks with other psychiatrists and psychologists talking about what can be done to maintain the psychological well-being of families as well. Sure, I, you know, I, I'd be happy to. And I, you know, I think there's a lot there in promoting psychological health and promoting social health yeah, and not just minimizing pathology. Yeah, no kidding. Well, we're yeah. on the same page with that, Jonathan. So, I we are. so I'll invite you back to the guest. His book is called A New Reality. And if you want to read that incredible essay, we've got it up at our website as well. Dr. Jonathan Salk, a practicing psychiatrist and a teacher at the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine. Thanks again, Jonathan. What a wonderful time to spend with I, you. I had a great time. And, and thank you, Sheila, for having me on. And I look forward to continuing the conversation sometime.